once the medical professionals engage with a social media platform, is your platform dead to students? The conference has almost burst out of the physical space. It's now just this conference in the cloud. It's just to stroke people's egos. It's more like you can write, oh yeah, organized this journal club, who did this, this, did this. And it's like, who is benefiting from it, really? Would you be okay showing it to your mum, a judge, a patient, and seeing it on the front page of a tabloid? Hello, and welcome to an ASME bite-sized guide to social media. This is episode two, and I'm Johnny Guckian. Social media is an exciting, fast-evolving, and dangerous arena. Medical education is increasingly involved in the social media world, and in our most recent podcast, we discussed how social media disrupts hierarchies and can advance careers. But how can you, as an educator, use social media more effectively? Where is it best to use social media? When is it best to use it? And how can you get started? To discuss these issues and more, I'm joined by three very esteemed colleagues from the ASME social media team. Firstly, we have Mr. Simon Fleming, who at a conference yesterday was described as everybody knows who he is, but in summary is an orthopedic registrar in Northeast Thames, vice chair of the Academy of Royal College's trainee doctors group, ATDG, the co-chair of the International Conference in Residency Education, ICRE, PhD candidate in medical education, Barton in London, and most importantly, I think, social media associate editor at Medical Education and the Clinical Teacher. You probably know him at, at as you probably know him as at Orthopod Reg. We also have Ollie Burton, medical student at Warwick Medical School, uh, co-president of Warwick's Surgical Society, and of course one of our social media interns here at ASME. With us, I'm delighted as well uh, to have Aqua Asif, a medical student at Leicester Medical School, head of visual arts at Learn Surgery Online. Burstology medical student representative, and also one of our fantastic new social media interns at ASME. And I'm Dr. Johnny Guckian, Director of Social Media uh, and Communications as, at ASME, um, as well as a founder of Medicines Medical Education and Junior Editorial Trainee at the British Journal of Dermatology. As we step through this series, we're advancing through difficulty settings. This episode could be described as more intermediate as we address some practical points and offer some examples. So, Let's make a start. Um, I think the first arena really to think about social media and the most, one of the most popular areas where social media becomes prominent, and indeed where a lot of people start getting involved in social media, is in conferences. Um, what um, are you, your guys' experience of using social media at conferences? Do, do you think it works well? Interestingly, one of the reasons I got involved in social media in the early days was to have to stalk conferences and to engage in conferences that I couldn't afford to attend. Social media has made not just conferences, but knowledge in general a bit more equitable. Uh, You didn't suddenly have to be able to afford 500 quid for a registration fee and 300 quid for a plane and 300 quid for a hotel ride. Um, The the thing is, when it's done um, intentionally, uh, it makes the conference a really interesting and agile place with loads of discussions going on. Mm-hmm. Equally, if you're just kind of following a hashtag, you might end up with kind of a piecemeal experience of the conference, depending on who's tweeting what. Um, and again, with recent events, I think people are starting to recognize that if you do it with a certain amount of intention, you can actually have a far wider reach as a conference which is the point of conferences to build communities and 
and share knowledge. Brilliant. So building communities, sharing knowledge, and, and really eavesdropping on conferences, that's a, that's a, a great way to look at it. Um, Akko, what, what about you as a, as a medical student um, being involved in, in conferences, particularly since COVID? Have you, have you noticed a difference sort of pre and post pandemic? Yeah, like it's um, opened up so many opportunities. Now everybody's doing virtual conferences, so we don't need to worry about traveling. We don't need to worry about um, missing placement to go to a conference. Um, It's getting so busy that there were two conferences on the same day. Um, But the thing is, it's like because of the hashtag um, with conferences, I feel like I'm not missing out as much anymore because I have little snippets of um, what, the speakers are talking about and the topics that they speak about as well. Um, do, you th- do you think, Ollie, do you think anything is lost by not not being there at a conference or do you think maybe there's any, you know, it, let's say if you're at the conference and, and half people are staring at their phones, um, do you think there's something lost there or do you think that's, that's, that's a challenge? Do you think that's difficult or do you think that's a good thing? I was just going to say, I was going to feel like the pariah in the room for suggesting that uh, that the hashtag um, almost couldn't couldn't replace some elements of the conference. And it's very difficult, as as Aqua highlighted, particularly as medical students, we're quite sensitive to. Well, perhaps it's unfair to compare ourselves to trainees and doctors, but we are very restricted with our time and with our money because we, you know, physically cannot leave our placements or we cannot afford to travel to these places and i think i think there is still ultimately value in that that atmosphere of having like-minded people together in one place and i think certain elements like your networking your handshaking your immediate exposure to these relevant people and these ideas i think that's something where we still have yet to bridge the gap with mm. a technological solution mm. handshaking I remember that. <laughs> um, when it when it comes to sort of again being in that physical space to get um, together, do you find Simon that as a speaker, if let's say if you look up and you see people um, physically there but maybe not mentally there, do you find that distracting, or do you have you, do you think that people are starting to accept that? Um, I was reflecting on this uh, yesterday actually because yesterday was a heavy. I say a heavy talking day for me, like every day is a heavy talking day for me, but you know what I mean. Um, As a speaker, I find it, have found it very difficult to not get that uh, feedback from the audience. There's that um, qualitative theory of the nod test, like the qualitative test of validity, which is if everyone's nodding along, you're probably saying stuff that resonates and that aligns with their lived experience. Um, And so as a speaker, it's really difficult when you can't see your audience, where you can't see their reactions and those little kind of nonverbal cues that tell you that you're doing well, giving a good talk. Um, I'm, I'm less fussed if people are on their phones at a conference. I don't, I don't honestly care because I know that that doesn't mean they're not engaged. In fact, if you're me, it means you're more engaged because you are through the medium of social media, basically taking notes. Um, uh, but I, I think I think you do lose some nuance if you are engaging in a, that kind of virtual way with your audience. Um, but you, you know, if you're being honest, if if you're being 
honest with yourself, there's a certain amount of that that you have to accept is just because uh, of ego. Like it's nice to have an audience. But then again, I love public speaking, whereas a lot of people are like, you know, it's my greatest fear is being on stage and my anxiety, whereas I'm like, no, no, give me a microphone and an audience. Um, So part of that is just ego driven as well, which is you're, as a speaker, you're not getting that feedback. You're not getting that um you know they're all smiling or they're all they're all applauding or or to be fair they're all shaking their head and you're like right i've got to fight on my hands i've got to change their minds or convince them or the q and a is going to be juicy like you have you have no idea until i guess you get written feedback or you have the q and a at the end so I, it has changed the dynamic of being a speaker in quite a big way mm-hmm. i think and also for being being a listener as well I've, I think it's conferences now have, have dramatically changed um, compared to 10, uh, 15 years ago. And the, the conference has almost burst out of the physical space. Um, and it's now just this kind of conference in the cloud, this, you know, this, um, uh, well, I mean, you would have previously called it a virtual conference, but now a virtual conference is actually a thing um, since, 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 since COVID. So it's interesting, um, Aqua, to hear your your thoughts on, on how that's changed with the with the pandemic. Um, it is easy to flip between one conference and another. Um, I guess there's a cognitive load um, uh, issue that runs through all of this, and how much can one person t- you know take on um, while tweeting, while retweeting, while Instagramming, while listening to a talk, which generally often the conferences are quite heavy. Um, but it's really yeah, I really. I, I like those perspectives, I think, and and also that the, Simon, I, the, the nod test resonates with me, and I could see Aqua and Oli actually physically nod, nodding a lot <laughs> um, as you, as you said that. Um, well, that's kind of a little bit on the motivations behind it, behind doing social media conferences, and maybe a bit on the limitations as well. But what about practically how to do it, Aqua? How would you? get started let's say you rock up at a conference and maybe you don't know anybody else there how would you get started in social media at a conference um so it's kind of like what simon said um just i don't know i guess dive dive in um with social media with retweets um i've met so many people um from different medical schools um it's it's nice to meet like-minded people um and especially when you were saying how do we i guess get used to the cognitive load Um, if there are, for example, um, agendas out, look at them and see which sessions are most, most relevant to you. Then you can pick and choose which ones you go to, um, then take notes. Then with hashtag, I guess, um, you pick up on things that you are interested in and then you can, um, if you retweet it, um, you can see which people are interested in the same things you are. And that way you can build a little sub community that way. Okay. That's how, that's how I've done stuff. And I think the, the key the key phrase there practically is hashtag. Um, would you think? Would you agree, guys, that as a, if you're a conference organizer, you should have your hashtag everywhere? And that's that's only that, that's if, if you even only have one hashtag. Some conferences have several based on the various different sessions that they've got on. What do you think about that balance between the multiple hashtags and the single hashtag? I've had conversations with conferences before about hashtag design. It, it sounds without being self-deprecating it's one of those really millennial conversations that you often have to nearly apologize for you're like I know you think this isn't important but let me explain why 
and and for me, it should be a singular hashtag, and it should be reasonably small or short, should I say, so that it's not half your character allowance is hashtag the best conference in the world 2020. Like it, it actually hashtag design is key in terms of it being it memorable and getting your again getting your conference out there so if you're going to follow that conference you want people to be able to search for it which means they need to be able to remember what it is so you know asme 2020 is going to be better than uh asoc study med ed 2020 number one smiley face emoji like you just have to accept that hashtag design is now a key part of building a conference. It's not just marketing anymore. It is a key part of your conference. Yeah. And I mean, we, you know, you, you joke about the, the, the ASME hashtags, but actually we noticed a statistical difference between using our previous hashtag, hashtag ASME ASM uh, 2019 with um, uh, TASME 20 or TASME 19. Um, and, uh, even though TASME was a significantly smaller conference, the numbers were almost comparable. Um, and when you consider ASME would have over 500 people at any given time and TASME had 100 max, that was, I think, fundamentally down to the hashtag um, design, as well as the fantastic speakers. I'm sure you'll agree, Simon. Um, so uh, one final thing in conferences I want to ask about in terms of a, a practical point, taking photographs of of um presentations there's been a lot of drama about that in the past ollie what do you reckon about taking photographs of of uh, presenters talks personally speaking although again i, I imagine there's probably a, a distribution of opinion on this i think the same rules generally apply you know as they would as they would if you were in a lecture as they would if you were at work um, as they do in a conference, it's it's intellectual property, um, ultimately. And I think there is also something, particularly with the conferences that that I've been to, which have been quite case heavy. You obviously have there's patient information in there. You know, even though you feel maybe isolated in your your little conference bubble, you know, aren't we all excellent doing this great clinical research? But people people actually do forget the basics sometimes even at international conferences of, of properly anonymizing their their presentations and removing um things that shouldn't be there and obviously if people have free reign just throughout to take photos of this stuff and this is something i'm guilty of myself you know as much as anyone else um i think there is still a danger there and and now having made that mistake i do always try and ask authors beforehand um, you know, I'm active on social media. I want to share this stuff. Are you okay with me sharing this stuff? And if I don't get that, I don't tend to do it anymore. Mm. There was a case, I'm sure, either a few years ago, um, where a, a conference had basically tried to crack down on this, and there was quite a lot of pushback, um, <laughs> particularly on social media. And you don't really want to anger the social media um, medical community. Um, but I think it's I think it, you make some interesting points about intellectual property, and ultimately that is important. What is it about a conference that makes it makes this different? 
Um, I, I think I think as with all things, there's nuance, isn't there? Um, and context and there's that whole thing where you kind of want to talk about common sense and then you recognize that it's not that common if you're presenting work at a conference by definition you are willing to at some level put that work out there put it in the public domain on the other hand a conference should feel like a psychological safe space for you to share your work your ideas and your thoughts with your colleagues and peers not with everyone anywhere but I guess there's that answer that there's that idea that you know if you're if you're not willing to have your ideas out there maybe you shouldn't have your ideas out there because there's still nothing to stop you rather than taking a picture from taking notes and rewriting the slide like same same um again I think there's nuance and there's dialogue to be had so I remember being at a conference where someone said um uh I'm happy for you to take pictures of my discussion and conclusion slides but if you couldn't take pictures of the earlier slides because they involve patient identifiable stuff. I remember being at a conference where a professor stood up to present their work and they were like, this is someone's PhD. It's not been submitted or published yet. So I would appreciate you not taking pictures of it. Or if you are going to take pictures of it, please don't share it. Um, if I think about uh, conferences like ICRE in Canada, the conference itself is live streamed, right? Um, we encourage social media engagement and pictures and tweeting and, 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 and. However, we do a session called um, Resident Survival Stories, which is where trainees talk about, often themed to that year, things they've gone through and how they've been supported to get through it, get over it and move on. And we are very clear that that session is a psychological safe space and therefore it is a no phone space. There is no phones in that room. Uh, I mean, obviously you can take them and we're not searching people, but you know what yeah. I mean. And we ask people, just like adults, and please don't share what you hear in this room outside this room. And in the five years I've been going to ICRE, we've never had a problem because people get why that's important. So there's a nuance to it, right? between I want my work out there and I'm sharing this work and sometimes having to say this is not appropriate for social media or I'm happy for you to take pictures for your own learning but please don't share this on social media like again it's it's about that adult conversation to be had with people um absolutes never work you can't say always you can't say never it's it's multiple choice exam design 101 um once you get into the realm of absolutes you're going to have problems. Yeah. And I think you touched on it several times there, that psychological safe space. No, it's, 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 uh, that wouldn't be a phrase I would regularly associate with social media. However, some people do find, find, you know, you know, comfort, comforting communities within social media. And as, as you say, it's about nuance and it's about that balance between um, these being able to share appropriate things and also then respecting um, intellectual property, yes, but also confidential confidential information. Okay, so the conference is the obvious space to to use social media, but there are kind of mini, almost mini conferences happening all the time on social media um, in the form of these prearranged discussions, um, which can manifest in several different forms, um, including. For example, uh, with ASME, we host a, a semi-regular chat 
called hashtag meded forum which in which we attempt to discuss quite topical ever so slightly clickbaity uh, um, topics for example in the past we've discussed um, reflection post um, the Baba Garba um, uh, uh, events uh, as well as talking about whether teaching fellowships should just be considered a year out or a year on holiday for example um, and this is something that's always been quite charged and we get a lot of opinions and debates and I, I genuinely think it's these are powerful mediums for discussion um, there are other forms of, the, of these pre-arranged chats, for example, journal clubs um, and then case-based discussions, though I've not seen many of these recently. For you guys, do you get, get involved in these pre-arranged discussions? Do you think they're, they're of use? Do you think they're, they're powerful? So with journal clubs, I tried. I tried to get into them. Um, they find a good paper and they usually invite the authors to them, but they tend to be very, very, very niche um, at least the ones that I've been to. I haven't been to ones where, like, you know, it's a big topic and it gets everyone involved. But it's more, it's just to stroke people's egos. It's more like you can write, oh, yeah, organized this journal club, who did this, this, did this. And it's like, it's, who is benefiting from it, really? Mm-hmm. O- honestly, I, 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 I'm, I'm just being realistic here. Um, journal club, because it's so niche and it doesn't open up broad lateral thinking, you're touching on our major criticism of journal club in general and i think we'll all agree with that and that's the difference between journal club and teaching isn't it there is a yes certain amount of ego stroking and yes things are very niche i guess they if i may offer a counter argument on behalf of that particular brand of of um organization or individual they they would advocate that it it promotes scholarship and critical thinking, and if done right, um, it can it can help you understand the research world a bit more, have a systematic approach to critiquing literature. However, can you have that nuance on Twitter or on other other uh, platforms? On Twitter, maybe not, but um, some journal clubs they've taken it onto Zoom. And yes, we have critically analysed. We've gone through like you know, like what do they do on this table? What do they mean by this? That's good. Hmm. But on Twitter. I think I think as we as we've discussed before, is Zoom really social media? And I guess not. I, it's not really particularly uh, open. Simon, what do you reckon? So I, I think this is interesting because I remember hearing about Twitter journal clubs years ago, and they were primarily used uh, in countries where they have a very large surface area. So Australia and Canada were the big ones, and they had this theory that. Um, if you couldn't explain something simply, you didn't understand it. And their challenge to their residents at the time was, take this paper, it's 4,000 words, it's very complicated, and distill it down into key messages and themes so that everyone understands the paper. Distill down its strengths, its weaknesses, its pros, its cons, its limitations and its conclusions, and share those with people who otherwise would either not read the paper or read the paper and be like, oh, um, uh, you know, Aqua is bang on the money, which is like all education. If it's done well, it is powerful and empowering and educational. And if it's done badly, it's people just talking rubbish for an hour about what they like and why they like it. And that's the point. A good journal club is about critical appraisal of a paper and 
making you aware of that paper uh, if you weren't and not saving you the effort of reading the paper, but helping facilitate a deeper level of thinking of that paper. With regards to, let's say, pre-ranged discussions and pre-ranged chats or um, case discussions, I mean, I, I never see CBDs happening on Twitter, ever. That's interesting. Orthopedics have a, a load of that. So we have, so in the ortho Twitter community, we have Fracture Friday. And um, every Friday, clinicians around the world will put up anonymized x-rays with a basic case series and will invite the world of orthopedics to comment on how they might treat it, what other questions they might have. Um, so actually, we do that quite regularly. And as a, as a trainee, I generally don't comment. Again, I lurk on those things because what you have is... 10 or 20 of the world's great and good from all over the place going, well, I would do this. Well, I would do that. And the little nuances come out. Well, I don't use that implant um, because uh, I feel uncomfortable with that company's morals. So on principle, I don't use that implant. And uh, yeah, it, it, it actually, pardon me, it is a thing. It, I, I think, and I would kind of welcome your input in particular, Johnny. For me, Twitter chats, case-based discussions, I think there's a real balance between whether or not they need to be or should be or are moderated or facilitated in some way, or whether you just throw that grenade and sit back. Because you see that a lot in Twitter chats as well, is you know, you're following the hashtag and then there'll just be an exposure, there'll be 500 and you're like, okay, fine. Well, that's kind of interesting. Um, versus having a clear lead on it who guides a bit like PBL, I guess, who kind of guides that discussion and takes people along with them. Yeah, I think the latter is is significantly more powerful than just chucking some content out there and waiting for reactions because that's not really a discussion, is it? That's that is just people having opinions. Um, the I mean, from my experience of of um, moderating Meded Forum, it's quite a challenging thing because, especially if you get a popular topic, you know, you've got that you've you've got that paradox where you. Things can be really can be really powerful, but then actually the more interesting, powerful it gets, the harder it is to moderate. And then if it's harder to moderate, then you've got loads of comments, and that makes it less powerful itself and less useful for learning. Um, so that can be really difficult and difficult balance to make. But I think a good moderator just makes sure everyone stays on the hashtags and then tries to scaffold a little bit as they go along and saying and refers back to the previous learning that may have happened earlier in, in the discussion. Um, I, th- I think. One example I would use, actually, rather than necessarily just pure discussion and topic discussion, because there's not necessarily, you know, content or knowledge-based learning happening there, I would use case-based discussions. And the example I would describe would be a Twitter account that used to be very active. I don't think it's very active anymore, called um, at TwitFRG. It was like Twitter Finals Revision Group. And it wasn't it wasn't massive, but I think it was a, my first example I saw of a well-moderated, um, regular case-based discussion where you would have, let's say, a kid rocks up to A&E, here's what the robs are, what are you going to ask? And then they were responsive with that, um, just like you would do on an, on a, during a CBD on the ward. I don't know, it, 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 that never really took off, and I, I rarely see something quite as responsive as that. I, you know, I, I have seen quite a lot of, especially in the dermatology community and then also in um, I've seen radiologists do this, you know, whack at scans, whack at pictures and say, what do you think, guys? 
which is very common on Instagram, um, but then Instagram doesn't necessarily have that dialogue, that multi-level, uh, multi-directional discussion. Um, Aqua and Ollie, have you guys seen any successful examples of, of, of case-based discussions on social media? Social media, assuming we're just using the term social media or a given platform, it's it's a bit of a sledgehammer, I think, to try and address some quite um, very niche and minute problems because there's a difference, obviously, between, say, a journal club where there is no prescribed formal outcome. Um, there's no learning objectives, as it were, whereas if you're trying to replicate PBL or a case-based discussion, as far as a medical school is concerned, there's a curriculum underneath there somewhere that whether you achieve it by yourself or it's didactically, didactically taught to you, you have to achieve a formally prescribed set of outcomes. Um, and in terms of designing these things, having been involved in the design of these uh, Twitter-based case-based discussions for neurosurgery education, one of the things that I think was helpful is you have to decide long in advance what you actually want your measurables, your deliverables, as it were, to be. Because I think there's a... If your outcome is to teach people stuff and to have them going away knowing about stuff, as opposed to having a discussion around something, but accepting the fact that people may leave that discussion not knowing stuff. Um, I think that's something that you have to be really aware of because you have to handle it in different ways at the design stage, I think. Yeah, so so it's, it's like any teaching event. It's having it well-planned. Um, and so maybe some practical tips for your um, anybody attempting to, to do these would be to consider your learning outcomes. Um, whether you want learning outcomes, whether you want to talk about a specific case or a specific knowledge-based bit of content or uh, focus on, well, not focus at all um, and just generally approach a topic and let people um, discuss around it because that can be quite powerful for social media metrics, the latter, I mean. However, if you then go to niche, as Aqua said earlier, and you go into journal club mode, then that can be a little bit uh, difficult. So we talked about um, this this multi-directional chat that's happening. So one thing that's more unidirectional is a tutorial. Um, I want to hear all your favorite tutorials or your favorite sources of tutorials. Uh, what have you got for me? So it was it, it was really interesting um, listening to as uh, not listening reading reading zodiac sign stuff mixed in with Islamic history. So this one guy combined the two and I was like what how can you do that um and he used tons of pictures and he used like tons of hashtags and he was like this Capricorn who was famous during this era did this 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 you will most likely have knee problems and I'm like whoa I don't it was just he used um bite-sized information and tons of pictures I think that's an example of a good uh, tutorial Okay, before before I go to Simon and ask him what he thinks about star science predicting knee pain, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, as he gives, he gives this great look, um, what I want to focus on, regard, regardless of the topic, what was it that made that tutorial effective? Because I guess he opened it up with a question, 
Have you thought about Capricorns in Islamic history? Do you want to know more about this? Is this even possible? Like, I don't know, questions that even make you think in the first, like, I didn't even think that was the thing. I thought they were con completely like different elements. Like, no, you don't, you can't mix stars with, I don't know. Um, so opening up with a question and using a really pretty picture. Okay, so they've got a hook there um, and um, imagery. We know that the, the evidence suggests that uh, tweets with images are four times as likely to be engaged with than tweets without. Um, Simon, I'm going to go to you. Uh, what do you what 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 do you think? Um, maybe stepping aside from this from the star signs, but more in more into. You know, uh, I was recently made aware of primal astrology, where I found out that there's a whole new set of star signs, and apparently I'm a quetzal, which is a very pretty Mexican bird. So, I mean, yeah, it's nothing. Um, you know what? The great thing about tweetorials which were born of the editorial but through the medium of Twitter changing their functionality to allow threads um, is uh, that it still um, forces people to condense down their ideas into without like hey as me bite size but these bite size chunks of knowledge of ideas that that allow you to process it better. I mean, uh, during the recent pand <laughs> pandemic, I got my mum to film herself making um, chicken soup. And so we did a tutorial on like Jewish mother cooking. And we had like celebrities and people being like, wow, this, right? But it, it still forced, uh, I say forced, it encouraged my mum to turn what normally would be somewhat drawn out uh, into these really concise little um, bite-sized ideas and concepts and principles. Um, you know, if you look at Twitter this morning, I only know because I was tagged in it, tagged in everything. Um, there was a thread slash tweetorial around um, bias and uh, issues with publication in journals because there have been some recent events around poor quality science being published. Um, and it's great, right? It is 10, 15 tweets using, like you say, images, screenshots of papers, things highlighted. But if you, if you look at the thread, the tutorial, the text is very concise, easy to process. You can read that tutorial and in two minutes you have learned something and understood it. You've been able to process it. Um, and so my, my favorite tutorials don't exist because like every day I find something new, whether it's orthopedics or med ed or culture or food, it's, it's people's ability to take what is often quite a complex concept and condense it down, which is of course the same skill set of writing a good editorial. Uh, first of all, give a shout out to my favorite uh, tutorials uh, in dermatology obviously because I'm a, I'm a dermatology nerd but um it would be there's a guy called Stephen Chen um at Dr Stephen T Chen um on Twitter who is basically known as the the, the well the Twitter guy or the 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 tutorial guy in dermatology and he basically says here's a topic um and um here's a tutorial about it and he features lots of pictures lots of polls which can be quite powerful in in on tutorials um, and they get a huge amount of sort of relative engagement in, in dermatology, considering 
um, Durham Twitter is is still a kind of a, a growing area. However, so I I recently wrote a blog on this for the new ASME um, blog on making tutorials. So it's worth looking at that if you're looking at the practical steps. But there is one account which I would suggest following called at Tony underscore Brew, B-R-E-U. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He is basically some sort of tweetorial guru who's made he's made so many tutorials, he's got a tutorial on making a tutorial. Um, um, taking you through all, all the great steps and about preparation for that. So writing everything out, and as Simon says, condensing everything beforehand and picking up the essential information and arranging it in a stepwise, well-presented, uh, um, sort of uh, well-articulated order. Um, so I definitely would would um, check those out. So that's a good way to look at the um, the different forms of social media engagement discussion, conferences, this, uh, um, pre-arranged chats and tutorials. What about looking at impact? So there is a rising and quite powerful uh, impact uh, measurement for scholarship called Altmetrics. Um, does anybody want to give me a summary as, as to what Altmetrics are um, and how they may have affected your scholarship? In research, as far as I understand from my, my humble position as a as a very junior, junior medical student, is that traditionally and historically, we have usually relied on citation-based metrics. Um, that's kind of how we assess the impact of the work we put out there, whether that's you know how many people read your journal article or how many people are talking about your journal article. Um, the problem with that is that it doesn't necessarily reflect very well how papers and how scientific ideas are shared now you know if i if i tweet your article to someone i've disseminated your idea but i've not formally cited you in in a work of my own so i think it was recognized that there was this need for another way of measuring how much attention and how much influence your your research is having right um so for example if you put out maybe a, a piece of video content or even if you just host something on twitter you would want to know things like how many people click on your your link that you put up how many people spend a fixed amount of time looking at your content where in the world is that content being read from it's this more the hidden data behind what people are doing on social media. And I think at least what I gather of alt metrics, they are, it gives you a more, a more diverse and potentially more useful when you're thinking about sharing content, a set of measurables than maybe the more historical means that we've used to, to think about how research is shared. Why do you think um, alt metrics matter? How do you think they may have changed the game? So I have an example, and I'm not going to say any names or anything, but um, I was looking at um, a journal, and they had a humble uh, like download count or view count of like 50-ish. And then there was one that was 1,000, 2,000. And I was like, wait a second. And then I recognized it because that was disseminated on social media. That, that hit the Twitter buzz. And I think as me or someone as well, like they disseminated it. So it makes sense that we need these type of um, measures, I guess. Okay. Do you think, Simon, that, that altmetrics has limitations? 
Um, I think it does. And the, the perfect example is that is the recent events, uh, academically speaking, uh, with some very poor quality papers that have seen the light of day that have been <coughs> retracted. Um, but their alt metrics will be through the roof uh, because loads of people will have read the paper uh, either out of morbid curiosity, but also because the paper was mentioned in the Boston Globe and the New York Times and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it's like anything in academia, which is uh, that just because lots of people have read it or seen it doesn't mean it's a good paper or good science. You know, there's a, a paper which I'm sure no one's ever heard of about links between MMR and autism. That paper's pretty widely read. Its altmetrics are very, very high. It is also complete rubbish. Um, it Again, it... it it's altmetrics are by altmetrics own definitions not meant to replace the old school metrics they are an augment in a in a non-traditional way to just tracking who's reading your paper who's using your paper when you use it as the be all and end all my paper has high altmetrics and therefore is the best paper of the year the most read you get into that slippery slope so if you're a journal and you're like and the winner of the biggest altmetrics of the year, well, that's a problem if the biggest altmetrics of the year is your paper that was retracted because it's a sexist, misogynist pile of rubbish. Yep. And it's, it's, it's kind of that thing where, from an altmetrics point of view, all, all news is good news or any news is good news. But actually, we know that's not the case. Um, and just because something is controversial... Whilst controversy can be good if we want to, you know, uh, you know, bring about change, not all controversy is justified, as we have seen recently with papers about misogyny, papers about homeopathy, um, and um, you refer to the MMR paper, which was not only retracted but um, led to the individual being struck off, and um, it involved research misconduct and fraud. Um, so. I think yes, we altmetrics can be powerful and help helpful from a journal point of view and from gathering data, and also can be a, possibly a little bit addictive. You know, if you're if you're an, an author and you want to, you know to get that little dopamine hit, just as you would with retweets. Um, but they're not to be all and end all. And um, basically, if you have got Kanye West out there uh, making a um, writing a, an article accepted for a journal, he would become the most the most, the biggest altmetric um, author in the world, which is nonsense. So I guess it's about um, finding finding that balance. Um, the balance is always challenging in social media. Okay, we've talked a lot about Twitter, and I'm really quite eager to get different perspectives because I recognise my own bias towards Twitter as my own involvement in that is heavier than my involvement in other platforms. Um, all in Aqua. Um, you guys are medical students. You'll have seen that that um, there are lots of medical students and other platforms which are which are growing, and we know some platforms rise and fall quite rapidly. Um, what is the hot new thing? What is what what are you seeing? Um, um, Meded growing in most rapidly. So, two social media that I think should hit um, Meded should hit um, Instagram because um, Instagram there are little cute polls and it's just. That's where it is right now. Like Twitter, for me, 
when I um, started, I saw instantly the bio thing, which we uh, discussed last episode. Um, so I instantly thought, okay, so Twitter is kind of like an ECV kind of thing. Whereas Instagram is more informal. Okay, I can learn this bite-sized information. Kind of like Vine, but like bigger slightly. I, I'm not sure how to say it. Um, and the second social media for me is Discord. Um, I know it's more used for gamers, um, but it's much, in my opinion, it's better than Teams um, because you can video chat, you can you can audio call. Um, I use a lot of my um, communication on there and I can have like little to-do lists. I can even code on there. It, it's, it's good. I feel like if, if anything, I'm using this as a platform to hopefully um, get Discord um, some more views, I guess. Okay, for the so for the Discord newbies, because um, I just had to Google it, um, what is it? Tell me more. Sell me it. Sure. I, I mean, n- not as someone who uses Discord often myself. I, I had to be cajoled onto Discord um, by my friends that use it. But um, it's essentially a private server is what it is. So you are given access to a, a closed private server. So, you know, if I, if I have my server on Discord that I register and I say, Johnny, Simon, Aqua, um, give you a link to my server, it's almost just like an enclosed space, almost like a chat room, essentially, with voice and video call functionality that sort of if you imagine something like Skype or Zoom, but just permanently active, that people can drop in and out of and connect to this server at any time, that's the way I would conceptualize it, that it's it's almost like a Skype call that never ends and people can just go in, go in and out. out. Yeah. yeah, and chat messages, you can pin them, um, you can assign people roles. It's It's really nice. So Simon and I looking at each other with horror as you describe a Skype call that never ends. That just sounds like post-lockdown. Oh. Uh, yeah, I, I reflect, I don't want to be, I mean, it, it's inevitable, right, that I'm going to become the old, the male pale and stale who's like back in my day. But the Skype call that never ends sounds literally like a form of torture. <laughs> um, it, it sounds like some of the days I've had during lockdown where I've been on Skype or Zoom for 13, 14 hours non-stop and you're like let 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 it end <laughs> but i guess that's the point right is it's a new form and you don't have to stay on it for all that time it's just that it never ends so actually it's a step away from that kind of virtual world where you can just dip in and dip out to a never-ending conversation i guess we know privacy matters to to people especially students getting involved in educate medical education on social media, um, I did a bit of work which which basically found that, that students have a real fear of exposure when, if they're going to try to get involved in blended learning, for example. They don't want to answer a question from their lecturer because they think, oh no, um, I'm going to look stupid in front of my mates. There, But we do know that they do uh, post things in, on Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp. And I guess Discord is just another example of that privacy reigning supreme Um and it works, it seems to, because it's it looks Wikipedia, that ever reliable source is telling me it's got over a hundred million active users a month. So perhaps perhaps now we should get some Discord FOMO, Simon. 
what what, what I wanted to raise because I think aqua I think this is a vitally vitally important point particularly for the for medical education on social media would you accept the provocative question is twitter becoming the new linkedin because basically i'm wondering whether once the once the medical professionals engage with a social media platform is your platform dead to students at at that point because there will I genuinely would posit there will be a continual shift as in wherever the professionals go, your students will slowly meander away from. For, for precisely that that reason that people, medical students value that privacy. And I think the expectations of a medical student on Instagram, and we've seen this from the way doctors behave on platforms like TikTok and Instagram and these these relatively newer platforms um there are different professional expectations maybe on than there are on on twitter and why is that i wonder if it's purely because the infil not infiltration but the adoption of twitter by proper med professionals is influencing how how the students behave because it becomes a work environment that's really interesting and i i suspect it'll be very difficult to, to test that necessarily whether whether that running away of students from the platforms is due to either you know yes intimidation because of the, infil- the infiltration by professionals or whether it's trends because by definition things become um, you know more trendy um, um, Instagram you know is, it has been trendy recently becoming less so Twitter before that Facebook before that Bebo before that MySpace RIP MySpace before that. Um, so there's always going to be the really popular thing. TikTok, you mentioned. What do we think about TikTok? TikTok is just another platform. Like I'm, I, My rules for Twitter are the same rules for Instagram, the same rules for TikTok, which is um, contemplate the rules that your regulator have laid out, right? Those are like the rule rules. Then add in, would you be okay showing it to your mum, a judge, a patient and seeing it on the front page of a tabloid. If if you are okay with all of those things, go for it. And that's it. That's it. Those are the, that's my, you know, if you're on TikTok and you're a healthcare professional and you're culturally appropriating a Maori dance or you are um, plagiarizing a famous meme where instead you are a paramedic dancing around with, what appears to be a corpse, you've got to understand that that breaches some of those rules, I think, right? Um, beyond that, if you want to do TikTok and you would be happy to go to bat within that framework I've just described, like, knock yourself out. You know, if you, again, I didn't have a problem with people showing that they're having fun and relaxing during what is a global pandemic. Doctors and healthcare professionals are human beings with lives and people who forget that sometimes need reminding. If, on the other hand, you are on a critical care unit in full PPE doing a dance, maybe you need to reflect on whether that is appropriate. One thing I'm noticing, um, and I think this is a phenomenon that we, we see with all platforms, for the educational community or the the research community is that first of all we recognize the platform 
Then we look at, can it, we ask, can it be used for, for medical education? Inevitably, we will say yes. Then we say, oh, hang on. What about professionalism? And then we say, well, actually, okay, fine. We, we Exactly as Simon says, we accept. Yes, it can be used. And yes, you can do it professionally. Just, just don't be a prat about it uh, and follow the regulator guidelines. And then we move on to the nuances of um, outcomes-based research and whether it can be successful and how successful can it be. I don't think we're quite there yet at that part of the conversation for these newer, newer platforms, but hopefully we're starting to get there. It's really interesting because you, you fell into my cunning trap. Um, when Ollie was talking about the social media platforms and, you know, the more that people with MBBS or MD turn up on it, the more the students run away. Um, if you think about that and just apply it to conferences, normal run-of-the-mill with people in the room conferences, and you go, well, all right then, think about the conferences that are welcoming and that have flattened the hierarchy a bit and that students do want to go to or have started going to. Because that word professionalism um, is, for some, a, and this sounds a little bit dramatic, but it's not, is for some a tool of oppression. It is a way you, you maintain the status quo. It is the way you slut shame women it is the way you maintain patriarchy and all the rest and actually like resilience it is a word that has been weaponized into something that doesn't mean what people think it means anymore right because it is not unprofessional to be a doctor and also have a beer or also wear swimwear or also have holidays um it is probably unprofessional to have a beer just before an operating list. Um, it, but, but that word professionalism is often weaponized to maintain these little tribes and these little spaces as, you know, you're not welcome here or you're only welcome here if you fit a certain mold. And actually what Ollie said is interesting because conferences recognize that if they wanted to engage with uh, junior doctors and students, they had to challenge that vibe that they gave off of like, this is a professional space. So if you're not wearing a tie, regardless of sex or gender, you're not welcome here. Um, and social media will have to go the same way or they'll, well, or they do recognize that it just becomes a tedious judgmental echo space rather than a place for learning. That's a wrap for our second episode of the ASME Bite Size Guide to Social Media. We have covered loads. We've talked about how to do social media better at conferences. Um, we have talked about how uh, perhaps journal clubs and pre-arranged discussions uh, can be powerful, but also maybe not quite so powerful um, when it comes to uh, learning and teaching in medical education. Um, and We've also talked about professionalism in the context um, of newer platforms, uh, which I'm sure will spark plenty of further discussions and perhaps needs an episode of itself. So join us on the next episode as, as we suggest how to build a brand on social media. We've got 10 tips to take you to expert level. See you then. Mm-hmm.